ladies and gentlemen, lace up those cleats for another incredible sagebrush service. We've got a great lineup for you today. Make sure those helmets are on tight because Todd is about to hit the field with his message. That's right, Cammie. Now before we jump over to our message, let's take a look at what could be coming our way. Our stats team is calling an 88% probability of what we call a classic Toddism. You know, like wiggity whack and boom shakalaka. And we're projecting a whopping 100% likelihood of him diving into the actual playbook and stressing the importance of getting in the game and executing the play. Talk about calling the shots. If I were a betting man, I would go all in on the fact that he's definitely going to express his quote unquote pity for the Cowboys at least 10 times. You think he's gonna waste his time on the Cowboys? Come on, this isn't the 90s. The Chiefs are playing the 49ers. That's where the real beef is at. Well, I guess only time will tell. Stay tuned as we eagerly watch how this whole thing unfolds. All right, are you ready? It's the first half. It's kickoff. Let's get in the game today. Let me start off by telling you a couple of stories. Mark Buchanan shares about a time he was at a fundraiser for a school for special needs kids. He was talking to a dad who had a special needs son. He said, let me tell you a story of what happened the other day when we were in the park. Mark said, please, by all means. This is the story the dad told. He said, we were walking through the park and we came upon a pickup baseball game. Now, for those of you who don't know what a pickup baseball game, it's just basically when a bunch of kids just come together to the field and they just play a baseball game. They don't have any kind of adult uh, uh, supervision for the game. Just a bunch of guys getting together, play a game. And so he said, we were watching the game in the bleachers. And he said, my special needs child, Shay, really wanted to play in the game. And he thought, well, I don't know how I'm going to even approach this kind of a thing. So he goes over to the dugout. And he finds the pitcher on one of the teams, and he says, listen, I don't know if it would be possible or not, but my son over here would really like to be a part of the team. He'd really like to have the opportunity to get at least one at bat. And, and so the pitcher right there on the spot made an executive decision. He said, you know what? We're down by six runs. Uh, I, I think that'd be fine. That'd be no problem at all. We'll have him bat in the bottom of the ninth inning. Well, wouldn't you know it, in the bottom of the eighth, they had a little rally, and they're only down three runs going to the bottom of the ninth. They got the bases loaded, two outs, and guess who's supposed to come up to bat but Shay? Well, the dad's sitting there in the bleachers, and he's thinking, oh, my goodness, I wonder if they're going to allow my son to, to hit or not. I, I, don't, I don't know. The, the game's a lot tighter now, and it's just a bunch of kids got together for a game, and they've got a competitive spirit. And so he was nervous about all that. And so they, the team got together in the dugout. I think they saw the dilemma that they found themselves in the midst of, and they began to debate whether they should let the little boy bat or not. And you would think that those kids would say, you know what, we'll just push him aside and see how this next at batter goes, and then we'll, maybe we'll bring him in for the next at bat. But that's, that's not what they did. They sent him out with the bat. Now, that little guy was so excited to be a part of that team. And he ran out on that field, and he, he got in that batter's box. Never been in a batter's box before. Didn't even know how to hold a bat. Didn't even know which side of that bat he should hold. And he put it up there the best he could, and the pitcher on the other side saw what was going on, and so he came down, and he came off the pitcher's mound and kind of, kind of tossed the ball underhand for, for Shea so he could strike at the ball. And he swung at it, but he swung wildly. He missed terribly. It was not even, not even close to getting a hit. And that's when one of his newfound teammates came running out and put his arms around Shea and showed him how to hold the bat properly, and then he helped him bunt the ball, and of course the ball hit the bat and it dribbled right to where the pitcher was at. Going to be an easy out at first. But everybody in the dugout began to scream, run, Shay, run! So he did. 
big smile on his face, laughing from one side of his face to the other, ran all the way to first base. Well, the pitcher picks up the ball, throws the ball so far over the first baseman's head intentionally, there's no way he was going to be able to catch it. He gets to first base, one of the kids is there. He says, run, Shay, run. So Shay is just laughing and giggling the whole way. He can't even run a straight line. He's having the time of his life. He gets to second base. Of course, the first baseman throws it way over the second baseman's head out into the outfield. So they say, run, Shay. And he runs around third, comes all the way into home, close place at home, and Shay is safe. And then those two teams did something. The dad said, I'll never forget said they picked my son up on their shoulders and carried him off the field as if he was the hero of the game. Now, when you hear a story like that, doesn't that give you hope for the future? That there are some kids out there who finally have figured out that it's better to be selfless than to be selfish, that it's better to give than it is to receive, that it's better to see a need and, 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 and meet the need. We hear a story like that, we just beam with pride. We say, oh boy, there, there's hope for the world today with kids like that. But we don't hear those stories very often, do we? Most of the stories that we hear are about selfishness and someone fighting to be first and somebody wanting to have first place, right, and, and doing it at any cost. The, the kind of stories we hear are the story I heard this past week about a mom who had a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, and they were in the kitchen watching their mom make them breakfast. She was making some pancakes, and they were having an argument between the two of them as to which one would get the first pancake. Well, the mom saw this as a teachable moment, so she said to her kids, she said, now listen, if Jesus was here right now, he would turn to his brother and say, you can have the first pancake. That's when the older brother turned to the younger one and said, then you be Jesus. Now, that's what we're used to right there, aren't we? Little sinner what he was right there. I, I don't understand it fully. Maybe it's just the sin nature, but there's something inside of us that doesn't want to serve other people. I mean, we'll do acts of service from time to time if it's convenient, you know, if it, if it fits in our routine. But to be a servant, I mean, to be a servant is different from acts of service, right? Because to be a servant is every room you walk into, you look for an opportunity. Every room you walk into, you see a need. And what do you want to do? You want to meet the need. No matter where you are, you live the life of a servant. There's not a lot of people out there that have that kind of mindset. Not a lot of people that have that kind of an attitude. What we're used to is what I had with my kids when they were growing up. One, one day, my wife and I were at Costco. We were doing the American dream, buying in bulk. And, and I, I, I wanted to call back home because I wasn't certain if we had a certain uh, item in the pantry. The item I was concerned about was peanut butter. If you, if you go to Costco or you go to Sam's Club and you go to buy peanut butter, you know you're going to buy a lot of peanut butter because they wrap that sucker up with another peanut butter. You understand that? Two peanut butters, that's a lot of, you got to be committed to peanut butter when you buy in bulk at the Costco and the Sam's Club. Well, I was concerned that we already had some peanut butter. I didn't want three or four jars of peanut butter in the pantry. And so I, I call back home to talk to one of my kids. Now, I'm not going to tell you which child it was to protect the guilty, but it was Hannah. That's who it was. <laughs> Hannah was 15 at the time. She was laying on the couch. I guess she was dozing in and dozing out. And she answered the phone begrudgingly, the phone that I paid for. Uh, yeah, she answered that one begrudgingly. Hello. I said, hey, Hannah, we're at Costco buying food for you. And... Um, I was hopeful that you could, like, I don't know, maybe get up off the couch and head to the pantry and see if we've got any peanut butter in the pantry. And I'll never forget, she went, <gasps> and I thought, is she on a respirator? What's happened here? Do I need to call 911? Do we need oxygen here in the house? 
Let me get up. So she eventually gets up and they listen to her walk across the room and, and she's huffing and she's puffing and I think this kid is absolutely exhausted and I understand why she's walked 10 steps. That's rough for a kid this age, you know. So she goes over and she opens up the pantry and I say, okay, do you see any peanut butter? Peanut butter. Two seconds. No. She sure. Yeah. Thank you. I come home, open up the pantry, two peanut butters sitting there staring me in the face. <laughs> Did you even get up off the couch? Did you even look? See, there's just something about us, man. It's like about going the second mile. If it's not in it for us, there's just something about it. We're like, I don't know that I, I want to do this. And yet the Bible, when we talk about being followers of Jesus Christ, he wants us to be servants. We've been going through this playbook, right? We've been going through the different plays of our church. And the hope is, as we share these things that make us distinctive as a church, that it would so resonate in your heart and your soul that you would want this, that you wouldn't want to incorporate it for your personal life and for us corporately, that we'd put our arms together and we would advance the kingdom of God. Let me share with you three more plays that we're looking at today. They're all very similar. Number one is this. We believe the church should operate as a unified community of servants, stewarding their spiritual gifts and their resources. So we should be unified. We should use the gifts that God has given us to advance the kingdom of God. Let me give you another one that's very similar. We believe the church should operate as the hands and feet of Jesus, giving and providing compassion to those in need. And then let me give you one more. We believe that excellence honors God and inspires people. Now, now what, what in the world does that mean? Well, we are to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Jesus said we would do even greater things than he did if we would just surrender our lives to him, be willing to be used by him any way we want. And then in everything that we do, whether in word or deed, we should be doing it to our very best. That's what excellence is all about. Excellence isn't about perfection. It's just saying, I did my very best in this situation. Now, now where in the world do we get these ideas from? Well, we get these ideas straight from the Bible. Look at this. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, if there was ever anybody who was ever born on this earth who deserved to be bowed down to, it would be Jesus, wouldn't it? But he did not take that attitude. He said the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So think about the ramifications of this. We have the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God most high, making himself low. We have the creator of everything that we see serving his creation. We have the one who owns everything and yet made himself nothing. Jesus' mindset was simple. You want to be great, be last. You, you want to make a name for yourself? No, it's not about that. You lift up his name. You, you lift him up on high. And this was a problem 
for Jesus with the disciples. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is the problem he had with these guys over and over and over and over and over again. One of the number one fights that they have again and again and again is who's the best. Did you know that? Who's the biggest? Who's the baddest? They want to know the pecking order. They were all vying for a position. Remember, they always fought over, who, hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, who's going to sit at the left and who's going to sit at the right? They all want to know who's number one, who's number two, who's number three. Hey, Jesus, give it to us, the straight facts, all the way down to number 12. Who's the greatest? Jesus. And it drove Jesus absolutely nuts. Matthew chapter 18, they're walking along the road one day. I don't know if Jesus is in front of them, if he's behind them, he's just off to the side. But the disciples begin to have a fight. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us what the fight is about. But Mark and Luke, they do. And they tell us that once again, they're fighting over which one of them is the biggest and baddest disciple of them all. Well, uh, Jesus hears the commotion, and he kind of stops them in their tracks. And he says, hey, 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 what in the world's going on? What are you fighting about? What are you, what are you talking about? What, what, what are you bickering about right now? And the Bible tells us that they grew silent. Why'd they grow silent? Because they knew this kind of discussion wasn't edifying of Christ. That it, they didn't exemplify the character of Jesus or what Jesus was trying to teach them about humility and about lifting up the name of God rather than lifting up their own name. They, they knew that if they shared with Jesus that once again they're fighting over the pecking order and who's the biggest and the baddest, that Jesus wouldn't be happy. So there's this long pause, this moment of silence. I just imagine all the disciples kind of kicking rocks, you know, not looking Jesus in the eye. And then Jesus says, come on, out with it. What's up? Well, when you were fighting over who's the biggest and the baddest disciple of them all. And it upset Jesus. He wasn't pleased with him. You remember what he did? He called a child over. And in the Greek, it tells us that that child was a toddler. So it's probably a little child, maybe two years old, just getting his legs under him, you know. Probably able to run to Jesus when he calls him over. And what's Jesus say to him? He says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like a little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He says, guys, you ever thought about this little child? Does this child have any ambition to make their name great at two years of age? No. They're not about power. They're not about authority. They're not about a pecking order. They're not trying to be better than somebody else. They're not trying to make a name for themselves. What does a child care about? Well, they just care about one thing. They just want to please their mom and dad. That's it. And so when mom and dad are happy, the child's happy. When mom and dad's disappointed, oh, the child's just a wreck, right? When the child realizes they've done something wrong, when discipline comes their way, they, oh, they want to please mom and dad. That's all they care about. They only care about the opinion of their mom and their dad. Jesus says, here you are. You're vying for position. You're fighting over everything. You think you're big and bad and awesome, and you, you want to be great, and you won't be the least, and you want to be first, but you won't be last. You need to be like this child. This child just wants to please his parents. Why don't you want to live your life the same way? Why don't you want to live your life in such a way that all you want to do is you want to please the Lord? William Barclay once said, The world may assess a man's greatness by the number of people he controls and who's at his beck and call, or by his intellectual standing and academic eminence, or by the size of his bank balance and the material possessions that he has amassed. But in the assessment of Jesus Christ, these things are irrelevant. We were not put on this earth 
to be selfish. We were put on this earth to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now that's the end of the first half. It's now time for the halftime show. I'll be back. Wow, that first half was incredible. Talk about a game changer. Just when you thought he was going nowhere with that story. Boom shakalaka. Now that's what I call a touchdown. He's delivering wisdom with the finesse of a seasoned running back, eluding a maze of defenders. The good old shake and bake. By the way, have you noticed our worship team is crushing it today? Did you hear that worship set? It truly was amazing. I can't wait to hear what they play next, and I'm already fired up. That's right, folks. It's not just about the touchdowns and tackles. We're about to witness a musical spectacle inspirational enough to make us trade in our seats for a spot on the field. Absolutely. The pressure is rising and the crowd's energy is through the roof. Let's get ready to show our worship team some love. What are we If we don't move our feet It's a blur trying to keep pace Days are running like they're in a race Can't move if we're in our own way I guess the crisis is We've just one life to live And no one knows what happens next So what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Why are we wasting all the time like someone's making more? What are we praying for? What are we saving for? What if we could be the light that no one could ignore? What are we waiting for? Waiting for, waiting for, what are we waiting for? Waiting for, would have been on a new Dream about what you could change And live it out before it's too late The beauty of it is It's just one life to live And no one knows what happens next So what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Why are we wasting all the time Like someone's making more? What are we praying for? What are we saving for? What if we could be the light that no one could ignore? What are we waiting for? Someone's making more What are we praying for? What are we saving for? What if we could be the light that no one could ignore? What are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? 
you could almost hear the faithful from before, godly men and women asking the same question. What are we waiting for? Jesus says, you're my hands and my feet. You're the ones that are going to bring a light into a dark world. You're the people that are supposed to see a need, meet a need, not just do acts of service, but actually be servants. What in the world are we waiting for? Well, for many of us, we just don't want to do it. I mean, we'll we'll do it occasionally. We'll do it if it fits in our schedule, but we we don't want to just go after this with reckless abandonment. I mean, we kind of like the idea of being served, don't we? It's as if we don't really understand who we are in Jesus Christ. We have this lofty idea that we're bigger and better than we really are, and that we forget who it is that we're trying to serve in the first place. I'm so thankful that the men and women that went before us didn't have that issue, that they understood who they were and what they were supposed to be about. Let me me show you what I'm talking about here. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. I want you to see how Paul opens up his letter to the church at Philippi. He always would give a greeting, and he would kind of say, hey, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, this is my position in Jesus Christ. And I just find it interesting, the words that he uses, and he generally uses this again and again and again when he opens up a letter to a church. Look at what he says here. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Now, that word bondservant is a Greek word. It means doulos, which means a slave. So here's what he's saying. He's saying this is Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. You know what a slave is? It's someone who's willingly bound to someone else. Now, Paul and Timothy could have chosen any title, couldn't they, when they opened up their books? Paul could have said, hey, this is, this is Paul, just to let you know I've been in prison a lot and been persecuted a lot for the cause of Christ. And, you know, by the end of my time here on this earth, I, well, the Holy Spirit's going to use me to write half the New Testament. Just wanted you to know that. Just to make sure you got that. He could have written that, right? But he didn't. He could have said, well, this is Paul. I've, I've traveled more miles than anybody else has ever traveled. I've gone to more cities and more places than anybody's ever gone to. I've spread the message of Jesus greater than anybody else. I'm the greatest missionary to ever walk the face of the earth. Just want to make sure you know that. He could have opened his book that way, couldn't he? And Timothy, Timothy said, hey, Paul, write this down, write this down, that I'm the most influential young leader coming up in Christianity right now. Tell him that, tell him that, tell him that, tell him that. Tell him I'm taking the baton from you, Paul. Tell him. Nope. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. In that culture... Slavery was something you entered into because you wanted to be in that relationship. You see, you, when you read the Bible and you read slavery, you read it in the context of America. You, you read it in the context of what you've read in history books where people would go to African countries and they would attack people and they would, they would take them, kidnap them, and sell them into slavery. That's not the kind of slavery that happened in the Old and the New Testament. Here's how it would go down you would find yourself in great debt. So you would go to the person who owed, you owed the debt to, your master, and you would try to find a way that you could pay your debt off. And the way that God had established slavery at this time was that you would go to that person and say, I've got a debt that's so great, there's no way I can pay this myself. I was just curious. Would you take me in as a person of your family? And, and would you allow me to the pleasure of working for you And over the course of time, take off some of my debt so that I could be a free person 
later on. And then the master, when someone would come and say, will you do this? Then the master would have to make a decision whether he wanted to welcome you into the family. Because if he took you on, that meant that you ate at his table. That meant that you ate his food. That meant that he kind of adopts you into his family. And for all the work that you do, he takes that and he pays down your debt for the work that you've done. And so the, the person who wants to go into slavery is asking for it. They want to be bound to that person. And then the master makes a decision whether he wants to bring that slave on or that person on in that context of that relationship. Now, here's what's interesting. The Bible in Deuteronomy tells us how this was supposed to work. Look at this. It says, if a fellow Hebrew, a man or woman, sells himself to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year, you must let him go free. But if your servant says to you, I don't want to leave you because he loves you and your family is well off with you, then take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door and he will become your servant for life. So at the end of six years, your debts were paid off. You could leave the house if you wanted to. You no longer had to be a part of the family and you were free and clear at that point in time. But here's what was interesting. Most of the time, the slave who attached themselves to the master wanted to stay with him. They said, you put a roof over our head, you got food in our belly, we've got some money in the bank now. I mean, I can't imagine life apart from the master being better than life, what that would be like. So I want to stay here. And so what they would do is they would take the earlobe of the person, they'd pick an awl, and they would put a hole in the earlobe, and they were now a part of his family for the rest of their existence. You understand that's our relationship with God, right? We owe to sin debt. A sin debt that was so great, there was no way we could pay it off ourselves. And so what did we do? We went to the master. We said, would you pay it for us? Would you, would you come alongside us? Can we sit at your table? Can we eat your food? And oh, how good has he been to us? Forgiven us for every foolish thing we've ever done. Loves us with an unconditional love. Believes things about us we don't even see in ourselves. And one day we'll sit at the great banquet table in heaven of every race, nation, and tribe proclaiming him to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Can't imagine life being better apart from Jesus. Can you imagine? We enter into this relationship with him and he welcomes us as a family member. And why do we stay? Do we stay out of obligation? No, we stay because we love him so much. Friends, please, please don't tell me that the reason that you're sticking around, the reason that you serve God the manner that you do is because you, you feel obligated to do it. It should never be that way. Everything that we do for him should be out of, out of love. It should be motivated out of love. I read a story about a little boy. He saw that his dad's work shoes were really filthy. And so he decided one night to clean his dad's work shoes. Nobody needed to tell him to do it. He just, he just saw a need and he met the need. So he works on the dad's work shoes and he, he puts them in his room while the dad's asleep. The next morning, the dad wakes up, sees the shined up shoes. Oh, he's so proud. Well, while his son's asleep, he goes into his bedroom and he puts a note in one shoe and a silver dollar in the other shoe. Note says, thank you so much for cleaning my shoes. Here's a silver dollar. Dad doesn't think any more about it. Dad comes home from work. Next morning, he gets up to go to work and he gets to put his shoes on and he finds a note in his shoes on one shoe, and he finds a silver dollar in the other shoe. Little boy wrote his dad a note. This is what he said. I didn't do it for money. I did it for love. 
Dad, I didn't shine your shoes so I get a silver dollar. I did it because I love you. Because I, I'm thankful for you. I didn't do it out of obligation. I did it because I wanted to do it. Friends, listen to me. If you're, if you're serving God or you, you, out of obligation, you're just not going to last very long. And, and you're going to get back into that pattern of narcissism where, where everything revolves around you and everything's about you. And I, and I can just tell you right now, it's going to mess up your marriage. It's going to mess up your kids. It's going to mess up your family. It's going to mess up every interaction that you have if you stretch your stuff and act like you've got it all figured out. See, the problem is, is we just don't buy into this idea of being a servant. We, we'll do acts of service from time to time, but really being a servant, we just don't believe the payoff is worth it. Because if we did, then we would do it all the time, wouldn't we? I, I read a story about a guy named M. Scott Peck. He's a famous psychologist. Uh, he had a woman patient who was suffering from severe depression just going through it. And he had met with her week after week after week for years and just couldn't kind of break through for this poor woman. Well, she calls one morning, says, my car broke down, not going to be able to make our appointment today. Well, Dr. Peck said, well, I want to meet with you. I'll just swing by and pick you up and then we'll go to the office. She said, all right, that sounds like a plan. So he swings by, picks the lady up. They're heading to the office and Dr. Peck says, well, before I go to the office, I have to have one pit stop. I have to stop by the hospital first. She said, fine, that's fine. So they go to the hospital and Dr. Peck says, you know, change your plans. There's a couple of patients I have here that haven't had a visit in quite some time. And I think it would be nice if you went up and you just introduced yourself and you visited with them for a little bit. Kind of made their day a little bit. Brightened someone else's day. Well, she begrudgingly said that she would. So she got out of the car. He got out of the car. He did his business. She went and visited the two patients. Hour and a half later, they meet back up at the car. The woman's more joyful than she's been in years. She said, I feel fantastic. I feel great. Having those conversations with those women, it just really lifted my spirit. Dr. Peck was so excited. He says, now we know the cure for your depression. And she looked at him and she said, do you mean you want me to do this every day? Isn't that the dilemma? You want me to show up every day? You want me to live this way every single day? Isn't that a problem? You, you want me to be a, a, a servant to my wife every day? You want me to serve my husband every day? Can you imagine if we just bought into this and actually believed it, how everything in our world would change? Do you imagine how incredible your family would be if everybody was a servant? Not did acts of service, but everybody was a servant. It's like, who's going to outserve the other person? They walk into a room, they're looking for needs, they're looking for needs, they're looking for needs. Kids are looking to help their mom and dad out. Mom and dad are looking out to help the kids. The, the, the spouses are looking to serve each other. I mean, that could be an incredible family, couldn't it? Can you imagine how revolutionary this would be if every Christian teenager walked into their school with the intention of serving their fellow students and serving their teachers? Teachers would pass out, I'll tell you that right now. They wouldn't even know what was going on. It changed the whole attitude of the school, wouldn't it? place that you work at that's so dog-eat-dog dog and everybody's in it for themselves. Can you imagine if there was an environment where everybody looked out for each other, they had teamwork and they cared about the other person and they put the needs of the other person ahead of themselves, how amazing that team could be? But we don't buy into it. We say, oh, I don't know, it feels good from time to time to do some kind of little nice act of service, but I don't know about us living it out every single day, Todd. Well, if you're skeptical, understand you're in good company because the disciples were skeptical as well. They just couldn't get it figured out. Three, three and a half years, Jesus is with the disciples, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And what's he trying to teach them? Trying to teach them about the kingdom of God. You want to be great? Be the least. You want to be first? Be last. And they just wouldn't do it. 
So here we are, it's the last week of Jesus' life. In fact, it's just a few hours before Jesus will be crucified for the sins of all mankind. He's going to lay his life down as the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate act of servanthood. They meet together in the upper room. They're going to have one last meal together. Now, the disciples walk in, and, and they know what's customary for meals like this. The Passover meal would last about three hours. They would sit at a U-shaped table. The table would be about three to six inches off the ground. You didn't sit under the table like you do today. You would kind of recline with your elbow, and then your feet would be in the face of somebody else. And so they knew it was customary for there to be a servant at the door who was supposed to wash the feet. Now, here's what's interesting. There would never be a Jewish person that would do it. It was beneath them. So they would get some Gentile, some person who wasn't Jewish. They would hire them to wash the feet because no self-respecting Jewish person would bow so humbly to wash the feet of somebody else. And their feet need to be washed. In the first century, everybody wore open-toed sandals if they wore shoes at all. And their feet were filthy. There was no sewer system. So by the end of the day, your feet were full of dust and grime and who knows whatever else you had stepped in for the day. And if you're going to have somebody's feet in your face for three hours, if you have to have that, at least you want them to be clean feet, right? They all see the basin of water. They all see the towel. But nobody will pick it up. Nobody will humble themselves in that way. Well, why is that? Well, Luke's gospel tells us they were fighting. What were they fighting about? Well, Luke says they were fighting over who was the biggest and baddest disciple. Again. Now, Jesus has got a lot riding on these guys. Just a few hours, he's going to die. Three days later, he's going to rise again from the dead. Then he'll appear to them over the course of the next 40 days, and then he'll ascend to the right hand of the Father. He's kind of counting on these guys to spread the message of Jesus to the outer ends of the earth. And if they're narcissistic, if they're full of themselves, if they're self-righteous or selfish, they're never going to accomplish the task. If they think they're too good for anything. And so you can imagine that Jesus is very frustrated in this moment, don't you think? And he's probably looking around these guys who've got filthy feet and stubborn hearts. They're all fighting over a throne, but nobody will fight over the towel. And I think he's fed up, don't you? I think he's thinking to himself, are these guys ever going to learn? Are they ever going to understand that true life and true living and true joy comes when you empty yourself of yourself and put the needs of somebody ahead of yourself? And he looks at them with these stubborn hearts and their prideful attitudes, and he's got to be thinking to himself, what do they have to boast about? Friends, what, what did the disciples have to boast about? They're fishermen. They're tax collectors, and they come from other occupations. they got nothing to boast about. They're flunkies. The only thing that made them significant was Jesus. It's the same way for us. We strut our stuff and we act like we're too good for this or we're too good for that and we won't get involved in this or we won't get involved in that. We look for somebody else to do what needs to be done because we think it's beneath us. The only thing that's significant about us is Jesus. hundred years from now, nobody's going to even know you were ever alive. Nobody's going to be sitting around talking about you and what you did. You're but a mist here today and gone tomorrow. And that's Okay. Because if we're going to boast in anything, let's boast in this, that he knows us and that we know him and that our life is significant as we do acts of service and live the life of a servant for him. Well, they don't want to do it. Nobody wants to take up the towel. Look at what happens. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served 
And the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now here's what gets me. He knows the future of the feet that he's washing. Just a few hours are all going to abandon him. Just a few hours, he's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're all going to leave Jesus high and dry to face his execution alone. Two of those feet are going to run off and deny knowing him. Two of those feet are going to doubt that he ever rose again from the dead. And two of those feet, well, they belong to Judas. Where's his feet going? To the chief priest. Why? Well, he's gathering the soldiers. He's going to lead the charge in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to betray Jesus with the betrayer's kiss. He knows where all 24 feet are heading. And he washes every one of them. Even Judas's feet. I would not have washed his feet. And if I did wash his feet, I'd have used boiling water. I'd have said, get used to the heat where you're going. I'll tell you right now, that's what's going to happen with you. He washed the feet of those who denied him. He washed the feet of those who hated him. He washed the feet of those who doubted him. He washed all their feet. He said, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. That's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant's greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you... If you do them. Not if you talk about them. Not if later this week you get in your small group and discuss it. Not if you memorize these verses. If you'll do it. And then you'll find joy and significance. And you get to see how God can use you in a way that you never dreamed you'd ever be used. So the question is, is what are you going to do with this one? Will you take up the towel? And not just every once in a while. I mean, from this point forward, it's the attitude that you'd be like Jesus. That you'd make yourself low and you'd put the needs of somebody else ahead of yourself and that you'd be the husband, the dad, the mom, the wife, the co-worker, the friend that everybody longs to be. That there would never be a task that would be beneath you. Can you imagine with the sea of people we have coming to this church if we all were servants, what more we could accomplish together? And here's the interesting thing. Jesus said, I take note of this. And one day he'll reward you for your acts of service. So it's not even enough that you get rewarded on this earth when you put joy inside somebody else and feel joy for yourself. But then the King of kings and the Lord of lords will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we have got to step up. I know I do. Good night. There are so many times in a given week when I have opportunities to humble myself and step in and step up and I look for somebody else to do what needs to be done. Lord, it's so easy to just get lazy and allow others to serve rather than us serve others. Lord, in our home, with our spouse, with our kids, in our jobs, in our schools, in this church, it's easy to be a taker. But Lord, that's never going to lead us to the life that you have for us. So help us to be a giver. Help us to be like you. See a need, meet a need. Pick up the towel, wash feet. God, use us. May our mindset change. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.